you, you can tell how well organized we are with this. So, so good thing it's the Lord that is in control and not us. So, but it is good to be together this Christmas Sunday. And so, I don't know if I said it before, but Merry Christmas. It is a wonderful time to be together. In a recent video that uh, was posted online, there is a man in a Santa suit that was conducting a, uh, what they call a man-on-the-street interview, you know, the kind where they will, they will stop somebody and ask them a question, usually with some agenda in mind, what are your thoughts on this? And, and I'm always a little bit skeptical of these uh, types of videos because uh, even if they support a view in which, with which I agree, you know that the answers are cherry-picked to, to promote a particular agenda. And if there's any integrity in the process, then the views should be representative of the responses. And in this case, and knowing the world in which we live, I believe the answers probably are representative or were. And I said this man in a, in a Santa suit asking a question, one question, why do we celebrate Christmas? And the first response that was shown was, well, there's presents and stuff. So that's a good reason, isn't it, to celebrate Christmas? We get, we get stuff. There's presents. And, of course, uh, the obligatory, well, it's a time to spend with family or friends. And another response that was closer was, uh, isn't it a religious thing? And there's only one of the responses that was shown that seemed to understand why we celebrate Christmas as a time that we celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that said, even for believers, uh, oftentimes that's where we stop, but we don't often truly stop and consider why is Jesus our Lord and Savior? Why did he come? Yes, he came to save us, but, but what qualifies him to be our Lord and Savior? And so this morning, our, the leadership here at the chapel is going to be looking at the, the birth of Jesus from uh, various aspects and thinking of the, the theological term, the incarnation, and we're going to look at four aspects of, of the incarnation. First, the pre-incarnate Christ. The second, what the Old Testament uh, foretold regarding the incarnation. Uh, third, we'll be looking at the, the event itself as recorded in the Gospels. And finally, the reason for the incarnation. And so as we consider the pre-incarnate Christ, we're really seeking to answer the question, is Jesus God? At least that's what I came up with as I was preparing for this. Is Jesus God? And so to answer this question, we need to go to the testimony of Scripture and uh, to quote uh, John from his gospel in John 21, where he wrote, There are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were to be written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. And so as we consider the scriptural uh, testimony regarding the deity of Christ, it's so vast that we don't have the time to consider all these passages. And so, therefore, I'm going to focus this morning just on three uh, passages. And, of course, very quickly, the first passage I want to consider is in John's Gospel, in John 1 and verse 1, where John wrote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so one of the key things that we see here that John is focusing upon is the eternal nature of Jesus, that is, that Jesus has no beginning, and he has no end. And he opens his gospel, John opens his gospel in a fashion that would immediately bring his readers back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1-1. 
Of course, we're very familiar with that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Psalm 90, which is titled The Prayer of Moses, the Man of God, Moses extols God in verse 2, where he wrote, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is eternal, no beginning, no end. We cannot conceive of anything without a beginning because our experience tells us that everything has a beginning. Think of it this way. Everything that exists stems from something which existed before it. I could not exist if my parents did not exist before me. My parents could not exist if their parents didn't exist before them and so on, and so on, and so on. Everything has a cause, that which started it. But God, as one early philosopher put it, is the uncaused cause. In order to create, God had to exist before creation, and therefore he is the I am, as revealed to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3. He is the self-existent, self-reliant, eternal God. And John applies that to Jesus. All of scripture applies that to Jesus. The second passage I want to consider this morning is uh, also in John chapter 1 and in verse 18 where John writes, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And this is kind of an interesting verse. I hadn't really, it was one of these verses that you just kind of read past and and don't necessarily think much about, but there's so much there. First, it says that no one has seen God at any time. That is, no one has seen God in the fullness of his being or in his very essence. He's revealed himself. He revealed himself to Moses on the mountain. Just a glimpse. Not in the fullness of his being. In John chapter 4, when Jesus uh, was uh, with the Samaritan woman at the well, he said that God is spirit. And as a spirit, he has no visible form. But by the Holy Spirit, John continues by revealing that there is one who has seen God in his essential nature. He wrote, the only begotten God God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. This phrase, only begotten, is one word in Greek which literally means the, the only born often used to refer to an only child or an only son. Uh, In Luke chapter 12, uh, uh, there's a story of uh, the widow of Nain, whereas Jesus is passing by the the gate of the city, which I believe was Jericho, um, a dead man was being carried out, the only son, that's that same word there, the only begotten, literally, um, of his mother. And she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. But only John applies this exclusively to Jesus, as in a few verses earlier in John chapter 1, and verse 14, where John wrote, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The same word. Or in John 3.16, a very favorite verse of Sunday school students everywhere, after Jesus wept, um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So what does all this mean? 
And John refers to Jesus as the only begotten God. First, it means that Jesus was born, which means he was a man. He came as a person, came as a man with human flesh on. Second, it means that Jesus is of the same stuff as God. He is God, very God of very God. And finally, continuing John's thought in verse 18 of John chapter 1, the fact that no one has seen God in the fullness of, a, of his being, but Jesus, the only begotten God, has seen him because he is God. In Jesus' own words, several times repeated in John's gospel, I and the Father are one. And because he has seen the Father in the fullness of his being, Jesus becomes the fullest revelation of who God is, not just in his teaching, but in his very nature. And then one last passage to look at very quickly this morning. In John 17 and verse 5, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And Jesus prayed, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This one verse alone could take years to unpack. But since we don't have that kind of time, we're not going to, I won't spend too, too much time on this, just a, a couple items to think about, and even that only on a surface level. First, Jesus refers to his own eternal nature. Glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He is eternal. And it really does take us back full circle to John 1.1. 1, 1. Again, where John wrote in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That's the first idea here that we see his eternal nature. The second is the idea of his glory. In the Old Testament, the idea of glory is one of, of weightiness or, or something substantial and is therefore associated with honor and fame and greatness and power. Another related definition is a revelation of that nature. And thus to glorify the Lord is to ascribe that honor, fame, greatness, power, etc., etc., to him. And so when Moses asked to see the glory of the Lord in Exodus 34, the Lord revealed his nature to Moses. And throughout the Old Testament, the Lord is concerned with his glory. And one of the chief accusations against Israel is that they would not give the Lord the glory that was due to him. They would not treat him as holy so as to ascribe to him the honor, the fame, the greatness, the power, uh, which only God deserves. Instead, they offered worship to other gods, in essence, sharing God's glory with idols. And God's response in Isaiah 42 and verse 8, he says, I am Yahweh, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another. But now Jesus claims that glory for himself. And if you or I made that kind of claim, it would be blasphemy, wouldn't it? But from the testimony of Scripture, we see, and hopefully we've seen this morning just on a very surface level from both old and new, that Jesus, as God, has the right to claim this glory for himself. Now Alex will come and take us deeper into the Old Testament to consider what the prophets said about Jesus specifically as it regards his birth. Well, good morning, everyone. 
Uh, the very first place I want to look at is uh, in one of the very first pages of the Bible. If you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Now, we're celebrating Christmas this morning. The fact that God became flesh, he entered into his creation, he dwelt among us. But this isn't something that God just all of a sudden one day said, eh, you know what, I think I'm going to go down there. It wasn't an out-of-the-blue thing where history is passing by and then all of a sudden God gets this grand idea. The fact of the matter is God had been planning Christmas from the beginning. There's something exciting about planning Christmas, at least it's exciting for some people, not necessarily for me, but for those who like to decorate and cook and, uh, and uh, do things like that, planning Christmas can be a, a joyous thing. And we, when we look at the Old Testament scriptures, we see that God had indeed been planning Christmas from the beginning. And that's why I had to turn to the beginning, Genesis uh, chapter 3. We know what happens in Genesis chapter 3. That is where we run into the bad news. The fact that sin and death has entered into God's creation, that we, though created in the image of God, have become cursed. We are under the curse of Adam. We are all subject to uh, death. And yet, uh, God does not simply leave us where we're at. And it's in God's pronouncements of judgment against Satan for entering into the, for uh, bringing sin, introducing sin into the world, that we find the very first Christmas promise. In verse 14, we read this. We read this. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This has been called uh, by various people the Proto-Evangelium, and that's a fancy way of saying first gospel, because this is the first time where God announces the good news of the work of Satan being undone. And who is going to undo this work of Satan? Well, he says, the seed of the woman shall come forth. And uh, to the ears of the original listeners, this would have been a strange thing. Typically, we are the seed of our father. That's usually how it works, and we don't need to get into the biology of how that works. But uh, we are considered the children of our father. And yet, what is God saying here? The seed of the woman shall come forth. Well, what's one of the unique things about the birth of Christ? Well, the fact that he was born of a virgin. And here at the very beginning, we see that uh, a woman shall give this offspring who is going to crush the head of the serpent. Now, moving on, I want to look at another Christmas promise. And this one is found in Numbers chapter 24. Numbers chapter 24. And this one's a little bit interesting. Uh, because when we think of the book of Numbers, we typically don't think of Christmas. We think of uh, in the wilderness, and we think of bad things happening to Israel because of, even in the wilderness, they still didn't learn, right? And uh, because of that, bad things happened to them. And yet, here we have in Numbers, uh, from the mouth of a very unlikely person, another promise that I think can be tied to the Christmas story. 
We have the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, in verse 15. And Balaam, if you remember, was hired to pronounce curses against Israel. And yet, God prevented him from doing so. He was only able to pronounce blessings on Israel. And this is one of the blessings. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High. Going down to verse 17, what does he say? I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. A star shall rise out of Israel. A a scepter shall rise from Israel, a star shall come forth from Jacob. Now, this isn't the first time that Moses has spoken of a scepter that is going to come from Israel. In fact, uh, Jacob, in giving his blessings to his children, says something fascinating, that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes, or until the one to whom it belongs comes. And what is a scepter? It is the sign of a king. So God through Jacob even, so 400 years before the Exodus, is saying that in the family of Judah, there shall be a scepter, and someone is going to come along and take it, and that scepter belongs to him. And now that scepter is being mentioned uh, once again. A scepter shall rise out of Judah. A star shall come forth from Jacob. There is someone who is coming, someone who is going to destroy the enemies of God, someone who is going to rule over the people of God. And he is described as a scepter, and he is described as a star. Now, the word star, of course, I think is being used figuratively here, and yet it does bring to mind something from the Christmas story. What is always at the top of just about every nativity scene that we always see? A star, right? Why is it that the th- that we, we call them the three wise men, right? We don't know how many there actually were. But why is it that the wise men came to Israel seeking a king? Well, because we saw his star. And what were they doing? Uh, why did they come to seek this king? They say, we have come to worship him. Now, why is it that they were coming to worship this king. Now, I can recognize paying homage to a king or something like that, but they use the very specific word worship. And I think that is answered later on in the Old Testament. Uh, If we turn again to Isaiah chapter 7, we might have an answer to this question. In Isaiah chapter 7, the Lord is speaking to Ahaz. He's uh, one of the wicked kings who ruled, and he says, Ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as the heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of of my God as well? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign." Behold, a virgin will be with child and shall bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And what does that word Emmanuel mean? God with us. Now, as with a lot of these prophecies, there's an immediate fulfillment of it, and yet there are aspects of this prophecies that can only be fulfilled later. 
there's a child that's born even later on in this chapter, and yet the one who is called God with us has not yet come. And we have more promises of this one who is called God with us even in the book of Isaiah. If we look in Isaiah chapter 9, we read this, another very well-known Christmas verse, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Now, who does that describe? That describes a king, right? This scepter that will rise out of Israel, the scepter that will not depart from Judah, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, Why is it that the wise men came to worship this king of the Jews? Because this king of the Jews is indeed mighty God, eternal father. Now, he's not calling him the father. What he's saying here, really, is that he is the father of eternity. He is the creator of even time itself. The creator of time itself is to be born among the people of Israel. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of Peace and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. One more passage, just very quick, in Micah chapter 5. The wise men come and they come seeking this one who is born king of the Jews. And they know exactly where he is to be born. Why is that? Because God had told them beforehand, even hundreds of years beforehand, in the prophet Micah. When we look at the prophet Micah, we read this in, verse two, in chapter 5, verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Who is that describing? But God with us. The Father of eternity himself. Mighty God. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. Why did Christ come? So that there would be peace on earth. How is that peace made? By the perfect life and the perfect and the death of our Messiah, the one who was born on that Christmas day, the one who was prophesied from the very beginning to come. And that's uh, where we're going to continue on to with the telling of that Christmas story. How are all these things, these promises fulfilled? Well, Ned is going to come and tell us that. So, Ned, uh, you're on. I've got the easy part. I'm just actually going to read in Luke chapter 2. And I'm reading from the King James Version because when I was a very young child, I memorized a portion of this for our Christmas program when 
I was probably seven years old, something like that. I find it humorous now when I read this because it says uh, it has the role of government here in the first verse. And 2,000 years ago, it says that Caesar Augustus decided that all the world should be taxed. Well, that is, uh, the, in today's world, it's not taxed, it's uh, registered. But uh, in our world, we understand taxes quite a bit. Anyway, I'm going to just read the first 40 verses, and then I'll make a few quick observations from this, from this reading. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, every one to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that, they should, that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill to, toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go and even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known to, unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things which they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of, Mo of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not, be see, should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to, him, to do for him what the custom of the law 
They took him, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is set for the falling and rising in of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, his sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with, with an husband seven years from her virginity, and she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayer night and day. And she coming in the instant, in that instant, gave thanks likewise unto the Lord, and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Israel. And when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Okay, time for just a few short observations. I was noticing uh, several things. The announcement to the shepherds was... Uh, they announced that he was a savior. That is definitely what the world we needed, was a savior. Another thing that I observe here is uh, Simeon. He had a desire to see the salvation of the Lord, this person that would be the salvation of the Lord. And in this case, it was a desire that he'd had for some period of time, and it was actually fulfilled. And it actually is a promise where if you have, a, have that desire, even as believers, we have a desire to see the Lord. And it can be fulfilled. Uh, for us, we have uh, multiple opportunities to actually see the Lord's salvation. Read this, read this book. Uh, each year we can read through it, but as we read through this book, we can actually see the Lord. And we can uh, be as Simeon said, let your servant depart in peace because you fulfilled your promise. I've seen him. And I was thinking of Anna as well. Here's a lady, probably go, go to the marketplace one day and they say, what do you do? Oh, I go to the temple. Uh, what do you do there? Oh, I just fast and pray. Well, that's got to be an exciting life. Up to the temple to fast and pray. Been doing it for 80-some years. You know, I don't, maybe she was just 84 years old and she'd only spent, you know, maybe 60 years fasting and praying. Oh, okay, <laughs> what an exciting life. And yet, the result of her fasting and praying, she uh, has the opportunity to see this one, and what is she, she, she lives a life of fasting and praying, and it's suddenly in the probably the closing years of her life, she becomes not just a faster and prayer, but she becomes a witness. Because what does she do? 
after seeing Jesus, she spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Then a final observation is in verse 7. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. This is our world today. I don't know of anyone here, I, looking over the audience, I don't see anyone here that I would say is a non-Christian, a person that doesn't know Christ as Savior. But one of the things that we learned when I was very young, uh, along with memorizing the first part of this passage, was no room. No room for the baby in Bethlehem's inn. Only a cattle shed. No room on this earth for the dear Son of God. No place to lay his head. Only a cross did they give to our Lord. Only a borrowed tomb. And here's the tough one. Today, he is seeking a place in your heart Will you still say to him, no room? Now, that's a message for the non-Christian. But it's also true for us as believers. We get so involved in so many things. And yet, even today, Jesus is seeking a place in your heart. Christian, will you say to him, no room? Okay, Grant. Good morning. What I'm going to be talking about is, uh, so what does Christmas mean to you? And, you know, each one of us think about Christmas, and, and when we first start thinking about probably, well, the stores start advertising, what, in like September, maybe late August, <laughs> you know, it's getting earlier every year, but um, what does Christmas mean to us? You know, when you think of Christmas, what's your first thoughts? And I think a lot of times, you know, to a lot of people in the, in the world, many people think of the gifts, and the, the, the buying and giving gifts and, and shopping, and it turned into this madness and this traffic jams and, and parking problems and, and costs. You know, people go out on, their, you know, on a limb with their credit cards and everything, and, and they just go crazy, right? Spend money they don't have, and it, it gets crazy. And the, the stress of, of planning and, and getting ready and everything, and it's always good to have family get together, and, you know, it's, it's nice to... Nice to have, uh, you know, be around close friends and everything, and, and food, you know. Wow, you know, Christmas is known for the food, right? Uh, we have lots of stuff to eat. We think of the lights and the Christmas trees and the ornaments and the angels, stars and nativity scenes and yards. And we think of Christmas carols, and some of them are, are really good, and some of them are really bad. Uh, here comes Santa Claus, you know. Um, Santa knows we're all God's children, and that makes everything right. No. Um, you know, we aren't all God's children. They're unbelievers are, are God's creation, but they aren't his children, you know. Um, God's children are those who believe. So hang your stockings and say your prayers, because Santa Claus comes tonight. That's interesting, isn't it? You know, starts talking about prayers, and, and yet talking about Santa Claus. So give thanks to the Lord above because Santa Claus comes tonight. You know, come on. 
this is, it's a little ridiculous, isn't it? You know, and, but do you think that's accidental or do you think that was unintentional? No, I don't. I don't think that for a second. I think Satan is, is alive and well, and he is trying as, as hard as he can to confuse people, to distract people from the real meaning of Christmas. You know, when we think of Christmas, our thought should be the Lord Jesus. You know, when I think of the Lord Jesus, you know, there was no room in the inn for, for Mary and Joseph, was there? You know, I think of mankind's heart. There's a lot of times where there's no room in the heart for the Lord Jesus. They have put everything else in their lives except the Lord Jesus. I think of the barn uh, where the Lord Jesus was born. What humility. You know, when you think of the fact that the, that the, the Son of God, you know, left heaven's glory, left, left that magnificent, you know, that majesty of, of heaven to come to this earth and to, to come here and to go through this, this life here on this earth out of love for us. I think of the Son of God becoming a baby. You know, as a baby, you know, when you think of, of, of a baby, what do you think of? You think of a beginning, something new. You don't think of something old. You don't think of something worn out. You think of something, this, this thing is brand spanking new, you know? And that's, that's what I, I like to think of, you know, when the Lord Jesus became a human. He came as a baby, uh, frail, weak, dependent upon his, his parents. And I think of there was no fanfare. You know, everything was, was quiet other than just the sounds of the, of the animals in the barn. You know, it was, and I think of Silent Night. You know, when we think of that, of that, of the lyrics of that song, Silent Night, Holy Night, all is calm, all is bright. Round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant so tender and mild. Sleep in heavenly peace, sleep in heavenly peace. Silent night, holy night, shepherds quake at the sight. And we were reading earlier how the, how the shepherds were out, you know, taking care of the sheep out in the, in, the, in the hills. And how the angel appeared before them. And you think of the glory of the Lord shown around them. What an experience that must have been. Heavenly hosts sing alleluia. Praise Jehovah. As glory streamed from heaven afar, heavenly hosts sing alleluia. The multitude of the heavenly hosts. Think of, think of that, all those people that were around those shepherds. Wow, that must have been quite an experience. Christ the Savior is born. Christ the Savior is born. You know, when I, when I think of the, the real meaning of Christmas, I think of the execution of God's plan. You know, like Alex was saying uh, at the beginning of his talk, was that Christmas is not the beginning of, of the thought of salvation, of the thought of, of what's God going to do with us. That was thought about a long, long time ago, way before Christmas. But I think of, I think of Christmas Day as, as the beginning of that execution. I think of that, the baby of the Lord Jesus. How you think of a, of a baby as a beginning. And that's what I think, at the beginning of implementation of salvation. You know, that's, that's where it started. That's where God rolled out his plan. And, you know, when we think of, of all the, the things that they experienced, you know, like in Luke chapter 2, it said, uh, verse 10 said, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which will be for all the people. 
for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That was exciting, you know. That brought them joy, great joy. In Matthew uh, chapter 2, verse, uh, let's skip down to verse 10, it said, When they saw the star, this is the, the Magi, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. You know, this was exciting times. This, this is the, the beginning. This was the start of, of the implementation of the, of the plan of salvation. John chapter 4, um, we'll go down to verse 11. It says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. I think of what was Lord Jesus here for? Romans 6. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 John chapter 1 says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you may too have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, uh, Jesus Christ. These things we write, so that our joy may be made complete. But God, being rich in his mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, this is Ephesians chapter 2, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, seated us with, uh, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God. You know, I love that, the fact that he gave us this gift. You know, we think of, of all these gifts that are exchanged, exchanged this time of year, those gifts are, are meaningless compared to the gift that we got through the Lord Jesus. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. What should Christmas mean to us? I hope it means joy. I, I really do. I mean, I hope that that's, that's what it means to us. Because that's, this is the exciting time of our life. And that the fact that Lord Jesus came to this earth. We should be celebrating that. We should be happy about it. And yeah, I'm, and I'm glad we have Christmas celebrations at our houses and things and get together with everybody. But boy, boy, I hope we don't lose the, the focus of what, we're, of what we're celebrating, you know? We're celebrating the Lord Jesus. We should, that, should make us, that should make us joyous. And I think of that, of that, of that inn where there's no room. Have you prepared room for Jesus in your heart? Does this implementation of the plan of salvation fill you with joy? Jesus had the birthday, but we got the gift. You know, that's, and I didn't make that up. That was, that's an old country song, I think. But, you know, it's, it's really true, isn't it? You know, we were the ones that got the gift out of this deal. You know, you think of what the Lord Jesus got out of it, and it was, you know, it was a tough life for him. He, he went through a lot of things for us. And like Doug mentioned before, John 3.16. I know it's a very, very simple verse, a verse that everyone knows by heart, but when I think of Christmas, this is what I think of. 
For God so loved the world. that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You know, that's what it's all about. You know, that's what Jesus came to this earth for, is so that we can have eternal life. The plan of salvation is so simple. You know, this, this verse is so simple, but so powerful, isn't it? You know, we have got eternal life because of what the Lord Jesus did for us. Let's close in prayer. Dear God, we just thank you so much for, for what you did for us. Help us to always remember that you gave the ultimate sacrifice for us. We think of your birth, and we think of all that you did for us. We think of how you were a helpless little baby, and how you grew through life, and you, you went through all the issues that we go through. And yet, we know that you were here on a plan. We know that you were here for a purpose. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you went to the cross for us. We can celebrate your birth, but we can also celebrate the fact that you were here and you accomplished what you, what you came here for. And we just ask if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, that this morning they would accept that free gift of salvation through faith in Lord Jesus. We thank you for your birth, and we thank you for your death for us. We give you thanks for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen.